Section 9 of An Explorer in the Air Service. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. An Explorer in the Air Service by Hiram Bingham. 9. The Personnel Office in Tours. On the last day of April 1918, I was designated as Chief of Personnel for the Air Service, AEF, in which position I continued until August 23rd of the same year. Air Service headquarters in Tours were located at Beaumont Barracks, which had only recently been completed for the use of French cavalry, but had never been occupied until it was leased by the American Expeditionary Forces. It was by far the pleasantest of any of the barracks used in Tours by the services of supply. At the time of my arrival, a general reorganisation in the air service in France was going on. In other words, they were doing what we had done so often at Washington, attempting to make the clothes fit the rapidly growing child. By the time the clothes were altered, the child had grown so much more that they were still too small. This particular reorganisation was effected after several weeks of study on the part of a board composed of the most efficient colonels on duty in the office of the Chief of Air Service. The general result was to give more responsibility and authority to the section chiefs, namely the Chief of Training, Chief of Personnel, Chief of Supply and Chief of Balloon. The Chief of Balloon also had under his jurisdiction the Information Section, the Photographic Section and the Radio Section. In general the organisation was well conceived and practicable. The feature of grouping balloon, radio, photography and information under one head was satisfactory only because of the ability of Colonel Chandler who filled this unique position. His long experience, even temperament, unfailing courtesy and wide technical knowledge enabled him to give satisfaction in a position that probably would have brought disaster to anyone else. The chief stumbling block to the success of the new plan lay in the fact that the sections could not all work in the same place. The supply section was obliged to be near the principal sources of supply, that is, the offices and factories of the French in Paris. The personnel section was obliged to be in Tours because all orders were issued by headquarters SOS located in Tours. The training section should have been at Chaumont, in close touch with the training section of the general staff, in constant liaison with the activities at the front, and able to reach all schools in the SOS. As a matter of fact, it was located so far away from the front as to earn the adverse criticism of organisations at the front and the distrust of the general staff. The Chief of Air Service himself found it necessary to spend a great deal of time on the road and to maintain three separate offices, one in Chaumont, one in Paris and one in Tours. As a result, it was difficult to keep in touch with him and many decisions had to be made either without consulting him or with inadequate information on his part. During the whole period of my stay in France, the necessity for the Chief of Air Service to be in three places at once militated very seriously against the success of our programme. The hopelessness of the situation would seem to emphasise the need of a different kind of organisation. It was foolish to expect one man to fight for supply with the French and British governments and manufacturers, to direct the movement and training of all personnel in such widely diverse activities as balloon, radio, photography and flying, and at the same time be in charge of aerial activities at the front, 
direct the movements and activities of the squadrons and companies in the zone of advance, and attend to the details of squadron organisation. The new scheme went into effect shortly before the 1st of May, but it did not last long. In the latter part of May, General Foudois was sent to take command of active operations at the front, and General Mason M. Patrick of the Engineer Corps, who had never been in the air service but had been in charge of the Division of Construction and Forestry, was made Chief of Air Service. There is a tradition in the Army that any regular officer can take any Army job, and General Patrick certainly justified this tradition. Notwithstanding his unfamiliarity with aviation and his belief that at his age he could give better service by travelling on the ground than in the air, he rapidly assimilated a thorough knowledge of the air service in the AEF. His remarkable memory and extraordinary capacity for the mastery of minute details enabled him in a very few weeks to secure a thorough grasp of the situation and to undertake a new reorganisation. His office memorandum number 23 reorganised the duties of the officer in charge of air personnel and it explains better than anything else my duties as they were in the summer of 1918. Office of the Chief of Air Service Office Memorandum Number 23, Tours 1. There will be an officer in charge of personnel upon whom will rest the responsibility for providing the manpower needed to carry out approved programs and estimates of needs furnished to him. The Chief of Personnel will have charge of the personnel section of the Office of the Chief of Air Service and of Air Service Replacement Concentration Barracks. He will be a member of the strategic section and will be furnished as far in advance as possible with copies of approved programs and estimates of personal needs and estimates of personnel needs. 2. The personnel section has the following duties. A. To procure and assign officers, cadets, candidates, enlisted men and civilian personnel for the air service and to coordinate and list requests for the same in the relative order of emergency. B. To keep track of all incoming personnel and to give destinations for it as long as possible in advance. C. To notify the commanding officer at the destination to which incoming troops are to be sent as far in advance as possible so that proper provision may be made for caring for such arrivals. D. To provide the requisite number of officers for all squadrons particularly for those which are being sent to the front. e. To prepare plans for the distribution of these squadrons in accordance with the approved air service programme. f. To request from proper authority orders for travel and change of station. g. To handle all correspondence relative to personnel and keep such records and files pertaining to air service personnel as may properly be kept in the office of the chief of air service. h to keep a list of officers by rank, grade and occupation. I. To refer to properly constituted examining boards the names of approved candidates for flying training. To receive the reports of these examinations and review the action of the board before forwarding report to higher authority. 3. Air Service Replacement Concentration Barracks, Saint-Maxien has the following duties. A. To classify all officers and men that may be sent there for duty. B. To complete the quartermaster and ordnance equipment of enlisted men passing through this station. C. To examine the organisation of squadrons passing through the barracks 
and see that these organizations conform as far as possible to that laid down in the approved tables of organization to organize squadrons from available troops to see that all squadrons passing through are provided with suitable ground officers and in general act as the agent of the personnel section in organizing squadrons according to the plan of mobilization for squadrons as laid down by the chief of air service d to maintain a ground school for aviation students in accordance with the program laid down by the chief of training who will exercise direct supervision of the course of study designate instructors inspect the school nominate a liaison officer who shall be a member of the staff of the commanding officer of the barracks to represent the chief of training in all matters pertaining to the ground schools for aviation students e to maintain a ground officer's school for training adjutants supply officers and engineering officers in accordance with program laid down by the chief of personnel who will exercise supervision of the course of study nominate instructors and be responsible for the proper training of ground officers and for providing such training for flying officers who have temporarily or permanently lost flying ability and will enable them to be used for other than flying duty signed mason m patrick major general nacas to assist me in this undertaking there were in the personnel office in tours some 16 officers and 75 enlisted men who acted as clerks while at saint maxien there was colonel a lippincott the commanding officer of the post and his staff all worked with unremitting energy to carry out the program as laid down of the difficulties that were due to lack of proper office equipment and scarcity of efficient stenographers it is hardly necessary to speak for they were not in any way confined to our office but were well nigh universal in the aef it was a pleasure to see how everybody strove to overcome all obstacles particular mention must be made of captain cleveland cobb whose careful attention to the details of the officers section brought it to a high state of efficiency captain hamilton hadley whose thorough familiarity with army regulations and the latest authorities oiled the wheels of our intercourse with other branches of the service lieutenant walter tufts whose courtesy and tact in dealing with anxious visitors permitted the routine work of the office to proceed with a minimum number of interruptions and master signal electrician walter buchanan whose long experience in the care of records and files made possible the smooth running of that machinery on which a personnel office depends so largely for its efficiency in my new position i had an opportunity to learn much about the kind of personnel in our squadrons the enlisted personnel of the air service was remarkable for its high-grade technical ability and splendid devotion to duty in the face of many difficulties the enlisted men always showed a willingness to accept disagreeable assignments as well as to perform their regular duties at unusual hours that was extremely praiseworthy many of them came from highly paid trades and a large number had enlisted expecting to fly the way they did their work and accepted the inevitable was very fine it was my observation that it would have been difficult if not impossible to have secured better men i believe that it was fortunate that enlistment in the air service was possible at a time when enlistments in most branches of the army were forbidden consequently we had an opportunity to secure the most intelligent american mechanic i believe it would have been better had we earlier adopted a plan where enlisted men above the grade of corporal 
could have become candidates for non-flying commissions when an enlisted man had done extremely well and was anxious to fly but was turned down by the doctor as being physically unfit to be a pilot there was no hope for him to secure a commission in most cases unless he left the service in which he had received his training therefore it was unfortunate that so many of the positions of adjutant supply officer and engineering officer were given to men without military experience to have reserved a large number of these places for enlisted candidates would have furnished an additional incentive and stimulated competition as would be expected however our enlisted mechanics frequently showed remarkable ingenuity and inventiveness some effort was made to procure from the enlisted personnel descriptions and drawings of their inventions and ideas in the personnel office we also saw and heard many things about the conduct of our cadets and even of our flying officers it should be remembered that the cadets were for the most part drawn from among a class of young irresponsible venturesome athletic boys who were willing to take the risks of aviation training at a time when about four percent of all advanced students were killed in training they felt they were gambling with their lives whenever they went up had they had a greater sense of responsibility it is doubtful whether many of them would have volunteered for flying duty consequently it is not to be wondered that many of them committed indiscretions of conduct in public which brought about them severe criticism the fact that they wore wings or special white hat bands made them particularly conspicuous and made it possible for the average person to identify them with the air service officers or candidates of other services could not be so readily identified by casual observers the destruction of morale by the long period of disappointment and delay which most of the cadets encountered showed itself in an unsoldierly attitude towards military rules and discipline which while reprehensible was not surprising the noteworthy and remarkable thing is that so many of them did so well the same remarks apply to a large percentage of the flying officers it was particularly hard for student flying officers to submit to the necessary discipline i believe that in the future it would be far better to postpone the actual commission of the pilot until his training is completed and he is ready to take his place in a squadron had the older flying officers of higher rank done more flying they could have raised the spirits and enthusiasm of the younger men it would be hard for a cavalry regiment to be commanded by a colonel who either did not know how to ride horseback or who was afraid of a horse it is just as hard for a group of aviators to be commanded by an officer who does not know how to fly or is afraid of the air it was most unfortunate that circumstances demanded the presence in the air service of so many non-flying officers i believe there should be no officers in the air service who have not earned their wings and are not willing and ready to make frequent flights either as pilots or observers it was also unfortunate that quite a proportion of the non-flying officers sent to france had received little or no military training having been commissioned in the summer of 1917 before schools for non-flying officers where their keen competition and stringent examinations were established some of these officers did well while others who had no experience in handling men were failures as was to be expected i believe that in the future non-flying positions in the air service should be filled by former flyers or by candidates from among the best enlisted men in the squadrons who after being selected 
should be required to take thorough courses and pass strict competitive examinations, both on the ground and in the air. Feeling as I did about the necessity of having the older officers ready to assume at any time the risks of flying, I wanted to fly as much as possible myself. While on duty at Washington, there had been no opportunity to fly after I passed my reserve military aviator test. Some members of my family and many of my friends insisted that it was foolish for me to take the risks of flying when not required to do so by the nature of my work. After giving the matter considerable thought, I sent the following communication to the Chief of Air Service. Requests be allowed to use such time as can be spared from my duties as Chief of Personnel without seriously interfering with the business of this office in continuing my flying instruction which ended at Mineola last August with the passing of my RMA test. My principal reason for making this request is the belief that it is good policy for the older flying officers in the air service to keep up with their flying. It is believed that it is not beneficial for the morale of the air service that field officers, who are in charge of important parts of the air service program, should seldom ever fly themselves. It is believed to be just as important for the field officers in the air service to subject themselves to the ordinary risks of flying, as it is for the field officers in the infantry regiments to subject themselves to the ordinary risks of trench warfare. My request was approved, and whenever occasion offered, I continued flying. I learned how to fly a quadrant and a 23-metre Newport, but it was difficult to fly regularly, and I had two crashes, one due to my own stupidity, and one due to engine failure. The first thing that impressed me after my arrival at Air Service Headquarters in Tours was that some of the older officers of the regular army who were in positions of authority in the Air Service appeared to be more interested in the progress of the infantry in the trenches than in the problems of the Air Service. I may have been mistaken, but that is the way it seemed to me. Furthermore, it was evident from their conversation that several of them who had been in the air service in France for five or six months, and who had been given advanced commissions in the air service, had made little or no attempt to study military aeronautics. Some of them were unfamiliar with the ordinary terms used on a flying field. They had spent very little time with pilots or aeronautical engineers. They could not talk the same language. That such men should have the power to make important decisions and determine aviation policies was bound to lead to discontent and dissatisfaction on the part of the aviators. The failure of a large proportion of the regular army officers who accepted commissions as colonels and majors in the newly expanded air service in the fall and winter of 1917 to make any effort to qualify either as pilots or observers and who did not even travel cross-country as passengers made it hard for the young pilots to accept ungrudgingly some of their decisions. The situation was quite similar to what would happen if a captain in the navy were put in charge of a cavalry post and never was seen to mount a horse or attempt to learn to ride, or if a captain in the army was put in charge of a battleship and never went out of port. At the flying schools it was most essential that the commanding officer be a flyer if he were to secure the respect of his staff and be able to command his post with sympathetic understanding. A few incidents which were current gossip among the pilot will serve to show why some of the non-flying commanders of flying fields failed to make good even though 
they had had long experience as infantry or cavalry officers in the regular army. At one of the largest fields, the commanding officer on his first tour of inspection was greatly astonished to see several relatively new airplanes badly smashed up and hopelessly out of commission. He inquired whether they had been properly made and properly inspected on their arrival, and when he was assured that this was the case, asked, Why then are they out of commission now when they are only a few weeks old? Rough landings, was the laconic reply of the officer in charge of flying. This new bunch of cadets will persist in making bad landings. I will remedy that, said the new CO, and the next day he issued a written order that there should be no more rough landings. To his mind, trained by a dozen years in the cavalry, it was like saying that horses went lame because they were not shod properly, and he proposed to insist that in the future this deficiency should be remedied, as it could have been in the cavalry by issuing a military order. Thoughtlessness, or perhaps utter lack of experience in learning to fly naturally, made him suppose that rough landings were caused entirely by carelessness and disregard of the value of government property. Another excellent cavalry officer at another flying school signalised his arrival to take command by ordering a hitching post erected in front of his headquarters. He had been accustomed for many years to performing his outdoor duties on horseback, and it was perfectly natural that he should wish to continue the practice. As soon as he got his hitching post put in, he ordered his orderly to bring his horse and proceeded to attempt to inspect the flying field on horseback. His horse took exception to the noise caused by several machines whose engines were being warmed up on the line in front of the hangars. As his horse pranced around in front of the planes, he waved his hands and as soon as he could make himself heard, shouted out the order, Stop those fans! Don't you see? They scare my horse! It may be easily imagined how glad the young pilots of the flying school were to take orders from one who was so keenly interested in their work. The ignorance of some of these old cavalry officers of the very ABC of aeronautics was quite extraordinary. One of them in command of one of our flying fields in France had apparently never even read that the Wright brothers had solved the secret of practical flight by making the wings of their first airplanes capable of being warped. This warping of the wings, while no longer used in most planes, was still a feature of the quadrant biplane with which his school was largely provided. Soon after he took command of the school, he learned that the quadrant was not popular with the young pilots, who gave as one of their reasons for their dissatisfaction with this old-fashioned bus, that instead of it being equipped with aerolons, the wings warped. To this he immediately replied that he would prevent that in the future, and order that all planes be immediately taken into the hangars, and not left out in the sun where their wings could warp. It was at this school, as I have been told by several pilots, that their morale reached its lowest point, and that many of them would have been glad to be able to get out of the air service and into the trenches. No body of pilots ever had a keener sense of loyalty to their leaders, or better morale than the Royal Flying Corps. There is a story told about General Branker, one of the chief officers in the RFC, that illustrates how far the higher officers of the British Air Service carried the idea of the importance of using airplanes rather than motor cars for their tours of inspection. General Branker was not a very good pilot, 
and frequently made rather bad landings and crashed his running gear. But this never deterred him from the belief that it was better not to adopt any safer means of transportation than were used by his own pilots. One day in landing on an aerodrome for the purpose of inspection, and before he had time to take off his helmet and goggles, the young officer in charge of flying rushed up greatly excited, told him to get out of the machine and never to enter one again, and that he was a disgrace to the service. I do not think you know who I am, said the distinguished pilot, adjusting his monocle. I'm General Branker. Oh, I beg your pardon, sir, replied the horrified lieutenant. I thought you were that young un who hopped off just three minutes ago to try and make one more landing and proved to me that the instructor was wrong who had given him up as hopeless. Nobody cared that General Branker did not fly as well as the younger pilots. What they did care about was that he played the game and was not afraid. It is true that in the summer of 1918 orders were issued in Washington encouraging all officers in the air service to learn to fly. But these orders could be carried out only partially in France, where facilities for preliminary instruction in flying were extremely limited, and where every training plane was needed to hasten the progress of cadets and flying officers on the way to the front. End of section 9